Oh, our Father, we're back again. We want so much to be in that new Jerusalem with you, but we want others to be there too. And we know that's your heart. So just use us as we train our children and as we learn in your school together with our children so that we can finish the work, go home. Thank you, Father, for your promise of the Holy Spirit right now. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I have a story for you all. Been waiting all week to read this story. It's called Three Letters from Teddy. It's especially a story for teachers. We're all teachers. Teddy's letter came today, and now that I've read it, I will place it in my cedar chest with the other things that are important to my life. I wanted you to be the first to know, he said. I smiled as I read the words he had written, and my heart smiled with a pride that I had no right to feel. You see, I had not seen Teddy Stallworth since he was a student in my fifth grade class 15 years ago. It was early in my teaching career, and I had only been teaching for two years. From the first day he stepped into my classroom, I disliked Teddy. Now teachers, although everyone knows, are not supposed to have favorites in a class, but most especially are, and most especially are they not to show dislike for a child, any child. Nevertheless, every year there are one or two children that one cannot help but be attached to, for teachers are human, and it is human nature to like bright, pretty, intelligent people, whether they are 10 years old or 25. And sometimes, unfortunately, there will be one or two students to whom the teacher just can't seem to relate. I had thought of myself quite capable of handling my personal feelings along that line until Teddy walked into my life. There wasn't a child I particularly liked that year, but Teddy was most assuredly the one I disliked. He was dirty, not just occasionally, all the time. His hair hung low over his ears, and he actually had to hold it out of his eyes as he wrote papers in class. And this was before it was fashionable to do so. Today he had a peculiar odor about him which I could never identify. His physical faults were many, and his intellect left a lot to be desired. By the end of the first week, I knew he was hopelessly behind the others. And not only was he behind, he was just plain slow. I began to withdraw from him immediately. Any teacher will tell you that it's more of a pleasure to teach a bright child. It is definitely more rewarding for one's ego. But any teacher worth her credentials can channel channel work to the bright child, keeping him challenged and learning while she puts her major effort on the slower ones. Any teacher can do that. Most teachers do it. I didn't, not that year. In fact, I concentrated on my best students and let others follow along as best they could, ashamed as I am to admit it. 
I took perverse pleasure in using my red pen. And each time I came to Teddy's paper, the, the cross marks, and there were many, were always a little larger and a little redder than necessary. Poor work, I would write with a flourish. While I did not actually ridicule the boy, my attitude was obviously quite apparent to the class, for he quickly became the class goat, the outcast, the unlovable, and the unloved. He knew I didn't like him, but he didn't know why. Nor did I know, then or now, why I felt such an intense dislike for him. All I know is that he was a little boy no one cared about, and I made no effort on his behalf. The days rolled by. We made it through the fall festival and the Thanksgiving holidays, and I continued marking happily with my red pen. As the Christmas holidays approached, I knew that Teddy would never catch up in time to be promoted to the sixth grade level. He would be a repeater. <clears throat> To justify myself, I went to his cumulative file from time to time. He had very low grades for the first four years, but no grade failure. How he made it, I did not know. I closed my mind to the personal remarks, which said, Teddy shows promise by work and attitude, but has a poor home situation. Second grade, it said, Teddy could do better. Mother terminally ill. He receives little help at home. Third grade. Teddy's a pleasant boy, helpful, not but too serious, slow learner. Mother passed away at the end of the year. Fourth grade. Very slow, but well behaved. Father shows no interest. Well, they had passed him four times, but he was certainly to repeat fifth grade. Doing good, I said to myself. And then the last day before the holiday arrived, our little tree on the reading table was full of paper and popcorn chains. Many gifts were heaped underneath, waiting for the big moment. Teachers always get several gifts at Christmas, but mine that year seemed bigger and more elaborate than ever. There was not a student who had not brought me one. Each unwrapping brought squeals of delight, and the proud giver would receive effusive thank yous. His gift wasn't the last one I picked up. In fact, it was in the middle of the pile. Its wrapping was a brown paper bag, and he had colored Christmas trees and red bells all over it. It was stuck together with masking tape. For Miss Thompson, from Teddy, it read, the group was completely silent, and for the first time I felt conspicuous, embarrassed, because they all stood watching me unwrap his gift. As I removed the last bit of masking tape, two items fell on my desk, a gaudy rhinestone bracelet with several stones missing, and a little bottle of dime store cologne half empty. I could hear the snickers and whispers. I wasn't sure I could look at Teddy. Isn't this lovely, I asked, placing the bracelet on my wrist. Teddy, would you help me fasten it, please? He smiled shyly as he fixed the clasp, and I held up my wrist for all of them to admire. There were a few hesitant ohs and ahs, but as I dabbed the cologne behind my ears, all the little girls lined up for a dab behind their ears. I continued to open gifts until I reached the bottom of the pile. 
We ate our refreshments and the bell rang. The children filed out with shouts of, see you next year and Merry Christmas. But Teddy waited at his desk. When they all had left, he walked up to me, clutching his gift and books to his chest. You smell just like my mom, he said. Her bracelet looks pretty on you, too. I'm glad you liked it. He left quickly. I locked the door, sat down at my desk, and wept, resolving to make up to Teddy what I had deliberately deprived him of, a teacher who loved. I stayed every afternoon with Teddy from the end of Christmas holidays until the last day of school. Sometimes we worked together. Sometimes he worked alone while I drew up lesson plans or graded papers. Slowly but surely, he caught up with the rest of the class. In fact, his final averages were among the highest in the class. And although I knew he would be moving out of the state when school was out, I was not worried for him. Teddy had reached a level that would stand him in good stead the following year, no matter where he went. He had enjoyed a measure of success. And as we were taught in our teacher training courses, success builds success. I did not hear from Teddy until seven years later when his first letter appeared in my bail box. It said, Dear Miss Thompson, I just wanted you to be the first to know I will be graduating second in my class next month. Very truly yours, Teddy. I sent him a card of a congratulations and a small package, a pen and pencil gift set. I wondered what he would do after graduation. Four years later, Teddy's second letter came. Dear Miss Thompson, I wanted you to be the first to know. I was just informed that I'll be graduating first in my class. The university has not been easy, but I liked it. Very truly yours, Teddy Stollard. I sent him a good pair of sterling silver monogrammed cufflinks and a card so proud of him I could burst. And now today, Teddy's third letter. Dear Miss Thompson, I wanted you to be the first to know. As of today, I am Theodore Stollard, M.D. How about that? I am going to be married in July the 27th, to be exact, and I wanted to ask if you could come and sit where Mom would sit if she were here. I'll have no family there, as Dad died last year. Very truly, Teddy Stollard. I'm not sure what kind of gift one sends to a doctor on completion of medical school and state boards. Maybe I'll just wait and take a wedding gift, but a note can't wait. Dear Ted, congratulations, you made it and you did it yourself. In spite of those like me and not because of me, this day has come for you. God bless you. I will be at that wedding with bells on Elizabeth Thompson. So God can give us that heart. Well, today is companionship. We're talking about the perfect parent, perfect teacher. And said Jesus was with, they were with him in the house, at the table, in the closet, in the field. Isn't that what our little, little ones 
are like they're always with us and we're oh I wish I could just get some quiet time but Beatrice said they are our little shadows but you know sometimes when they get a little older and they start seeing their friends and peers that starts changing and we need to now take time in the busyness of our schedules because sometimes without really knowing it there has come a gap there we're not really connected as a family we're living together and especially if any children are going to school they are spending more hours away from home than home and so I had listened to some incredible tapes by the um, Rain family. How many have heard of the Rain family? They were just excellent. And I've listened to a lot of parenting tapes through the years. And they were very positive, and they're, they just emphasize you need to connect, like Beecher said, with your child's heart. It's easy in those very early years to be loving and on them and kissing them and doing things with them because they're there and that's what you need to do but then you know later um, you might discover you're not as connected so here's how we can connect practical ideas and they had very practical ideas um, wanted to show you the book the connected family you can go to restoration international their website and then they have DVDs to go along with it. Very simple, practical ways to connect our families. Okay. Give some of your leisure hours to your children. Associate with them in their work and in their sports and win their confidence. Cultivate their friendship. Let parents devote the evenings to their families. Lay off care and perplexity with the labors of the day. Is that a tough one? Especially during the summer. I don't know, it's always a tough one. But, well worth it. Here's another one. The home should be made a school of instruction rather than a place of monotonous drudgery. The evening should be cherished as precious seasons to be voted to the instruction of the children in the way of righteousness. Uh, you're not sitting down necessarily. You know, with heavy instruction, you can just read those beautiful books of godly men, women, missionaries who've made a difference in, in their world. I know, since I have girls, and they love to sit and be read to, we looked forward to those evenings, but it's hard to just sit if you're a kid. And so they would put something in their hands. And I know my older daughter learned to crochet during that time. My other daughter did cross stitch. So their little hands were busy. And I was thinking, so what would boys do? Well, they could just snuggle up to mommy or they could whittle. I don't know. They knit? Okay. Wow. And I was going to mention, speaking of handcrafts, I didn't know how to knit, crochet, any of that. Had wanted to, so I found an elderly lady in our church. 
and took my daughters over there. And it was this little oasis in time. You go, when you go to an older person's home, it's so quiet. <laughs> I just, it just hits you. It's so quiet. And you just forget about your busyness of your schedule. And we would go there once a week. And she just loved it, this older lady. And so the, my girls, or the one of them, learned to really um, crochet and then taught herself to knit. Um, and loved it ever since. So that's what we did in the evenings. Now, Daddy wasn't there, unfortunately. And I will speak to the dads about that. But I want to also talk about holiday time. That's another time. We don't want to ignore the holidays. Um, but we need to plan for them God's way. And there's a good section in Avenue's Home on holidays. She says, through the observance of holidays, the people both of the world and of the churches have been educated to believe that these lazy days are essential to health and happiness, but the results reveal they are full of evil. We have tried earnestly to make the holidays as interesting as possible to the youth and children while changing the order of things. You know, we're doing something different. We're not working and having school. It's something different, but it still can be useful, but fun. Our object has been to keep them away from the scenes of amusement among believers. So there's principle number one. Don't go where the rest of the crowd is. <laughs> That's a biggie. <clears throat> so what might you do? And I didn't put in the rest of the ideas. <clears throat> but she said, try to make it useful. Maybe look for somebody in your community, church family that's single or older, and bring them into the home if you're going to prepare a special meal. Or if you're going to go somewhere, maybe away from where other people are, um, maybe you're just going to go to a, um, maybe you're going to go for a bike ride, you know. You could do things together. I know we we had a, um, a blind friend of ours, and it was hard, actually, for my girls at that time. But this poor guy had been an alcoholic for 20 years, and he was still working on getting off of it when we met him, brought him into our home. And um, it was kind of hard, wasn't it, Tricia? But, you know, looking back today, God rescued him. And his mind is better than mine. He remembers. He couldn't see well. And so he couldn't write down things. He couldn't find the slip of paper he wrote it on. He had macular degeneration. And he, couldn't, he was always losing things. But he loved to learn. He probably had an, just an excellent mind. His dad had been an alcoholic. You know, he just didn't have... And we brought him into our home for all our holidays. We'd take him to church. And he just didn't seem to notice my kids, you know, didn't talk to me. He didn't know how to. And today, he calls me about once a month and talks. And this is incredible. He'll say, well, how's your family doing? God has changed his mind. And 
he'll ask, you know, how are you girls doing? Just saying, Lord, this is incredible. That's what we did, didn't we, on holidays. It was hard because he's not talking to him, and he'll just suddenly start talking and interrupt the conversation. And I look back and say, oh, dear, I was just thinking of him. But they survived. <laughs> we see him every year at camp meeting, and it's so neat to see that God rescued this man. Well, I have some counsel for dads. And I had permission from my husband <laughs> when I read this. I hadn't read this until I was preparing for this. So let me give it to you. If he, dad, is engaged in business which wholly closes the door of usefulness to his family, he should seek other employment which will not prevent him from devoting some time to his children. If he neglects them, he is unfaithful to the trust committed to him of God. I know, I thought, there's going to be all mothers, and they're going to tell their fathers, and they're just going to, and it's not going to go over real well. But, and, and in thinking about it, and Mr. Montag understands, because he and my husband work together at Weimar. And, well, anytime you're in finances and in management, your, your time's just hardly your own. Now, Mr. Montag found time to play with his kids. I remember that, because he brought our kids in, and they played, and, oh, they thought that was great, because their daddy wasn't playing with them, you know, and he took out time. I remember you slept on the back porch with our kids and your kids. It was, and they looked up at the stars, and it was really neat. And they did some bat, some volleyball together. He had all girls, I had all girls. Yeah, and I remember that. He really made a point. Um, my husband was with the finances. I don't know if that made a difference, because you're always trying to pay the bill and trying to do payroll and meet the budget and prepare for the board meeting. I don't know, but I know Mr. Montag put a priority on his kids. And my husband did too. When he was home, he was with us. He was patient with them, and he was with us. But I would see his schedule, and I, I would hesitate to plan a weekend away because it meant he'd stay up till 2 a.m. the night before. And I hated to do that to him. So a couple weeks ago, I finally heard the solution. Uh, Mr. Montag preached a sermon, and he said six things to get ready for Jesus to come. And it was for dads to have a simple job. But a simple job. That, why? Wow, I've just been pondering that. A tent maker, maybe with a skill, bring in some income, or involve the children in that job. My daughter and her husband have a, he has a simple job. And they're not building a mansion on the simple job. <laughs> it's been rough, very rough. But they're able to bring in their children. 
It's, and, and my other son-in-law, he's still kind of working that out. He's doing construction and saying to his kid, oh, don't ever grow up to be like daddy and work in construction. But I know God's going to direct them. He has skills he can pass on to his little boy. And, you know, dads really need to pray about this. You have about maybe 25 years, I was thinking that, depending how many children you have. And then you got, well, hopefully the Lord's come. But for us, we had about 23 years in the 66 years, you know, for this total devotion to the family. Um, okay. Another thing, we've talked about this. You want to give the children the understanding we are a team. And so we want to think of it that way. We're not going to pay our children to work in our home, give them extra money for extra things. But you want to teach them the principle of cooperation. And when I was reading in education, they really, Mrs. White really emphasized that same thought in the classroom, to teach the children the thought we're, we're a little family here in the classroom. We're all going to cooperate together. We're going to set the rules together. We're going to keep the classroom clean together. We're going to keep the outside of the school, you know, clean. And so it really has hit me that if your children realize they're needed in this team effort in the home, that's where those little home missionaries are grown. And then they can be used by mommy when she goes to the neighborhood to visit the neighbors because of their good behavior. But they've learned to be useful. And maybe they can share the vegetables they've grown or they can um, show an interest in the neighbors. Maybe they can even help, you know, an older neighbor. So those little home missionaries, they need to see themselves as a team. And I know when your kids are in school, it's harder. Everybody's going and coming. I was thinking this morning, oh, I'm so glad when I can stay home in the morning will be quiet. This rushing out the door, I don't like it. <laughs> um, and, wow, it was nice when we homeschooled, you know. You could just quietly, you're staying at home. Anyway, there is another time that God's given us the Sabbath. The value of the Sabbath, the means of education, is beyond estimate. Whatever of ours God claims from us, he returns again enriched, transfigured with his own glory. The Sabbath and the family were alike instituted in Eden. We've been talking about Eden. And in God's purpose, they are indissolubly linked together on this day more than any more than on any other. It is possible for us to live the life of Eden. Did you ever think of that when Sabbath comes? Oh, this is going to be like, why would it be the life of Eden? Do you think it's because we're going to go outside? I think so. Often the father hardly sees the faces of his children throughout the week. He is almost wholly deprived of opportunity for companionship or instruction. But God's love has set a limit to the demands of toil. 
Over the Sabbath, he places his merciful hand. In his own day, he preserves for the family opportunity for communion with him, with nature, and with one another. The Sabbath school and the meeting for worship occupy only a part of the Sabbath. The, oh, did I advance it? Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. Sorry about that. Okay. The Sabbath school and the meeting for worship occupy only a part of the Sabbath. The portion remaining to the family may be made the most sacred. But that takes planning. Kids aren't going to know how to do that. Mm -mm. And if you're with your f adult friends, they're not going to know how to do that. I really think much of the time, Sabbath afternoon needs to be with just your family. And, you know, I was just thinking some friends in our church have invited my daughter's family for a play date during the week thought, well, now that makes sense. That takes a real sacrifice of time. It's much easier on Sabbath to do that, you know, just kind of let it happen. What a thought. You're going to really spend the time on Sabbath as a family so you can really guide those children, make it what God planned. Natalie, sure, yes. Yeah, so look for those that need encouragement. Wow, reaching out. Yeah, and your conversation will then stay. You know you have a purpose in this? What a good idea. Okay, parents can and should give attention to their children, reading to them the most attractive portions of Bible history, educating them to reverence the Sabbath day, keeping it according to the commandment. This cannot be done if the parents feel no burden to interest their children. But they can. Did I advance it? Not again. Oh, I'll get it. Last day. The, okay, the children. Do you see where it says the children kind of down? The children can be interested in good reading or in conversation about the salvation of their souls. But they have to be educated and trained. The natural heart does not love to think of God, of heaven, or of heavenly things. You have to train that. Um, okay, I have some ideas for Sabbath. I've always wanted to have some ideas. And before I, as I'm looking for them, oh, here they are. I just remembered, I've been talking to Mr. Montag and his wife about Sabbath through the years. And he told me they took turns planning Sabbath. One week he did it, one week she did it. Wow. And so it kind of takes the burden off of mommy. I really like that idea, but they planned it. And once their children were older, they wanted to keep Sabbath properly. That's how it works. Okay, where is this list? I found this on Restoration International, giving full credit to them. And I did get one idea from my daughter, younger daughter. When, Friday, when Sabbath comes early on Friday night, and it's not bedtime yet, and mom and dad are going to fall asleep if they read, 
and your kids are high, you know, they're active. They're wanting to, they're not wanting to sit and read for two hours till bedtime. What do you do? It's dark outside. You know what my daughter does? She gets flashlights for each kid and they go outside with flashlights and they take a walk. I thought that was kind of neat. Or you could even bundle up and look at the stars. I know when it's getting cooler weather, that's when the st it's, I think, if I'm right, it's a better time to see stars. But I really like that solution to those long Friday nights um, when, you know, it's dark and you got active kids and mommy and daddy are going to fall asleep if they read. And another thing is, um, you've probably heard the idea of having a Sabbath, having Sabbath toys, a Sabbath box. And my daughter has had that. And, and the little ones don't get the difference between a block that's going to have a Bible character on it. You put it together, you know, and it'll make a Bible scene at first. But it's the idea you're planting that thought and seed. Sabbath has special things we do. So she has a Sabbath box. She just collects it. We're not going to play with it and brings those things out, puzzles and books and things. And then from this website I went to, Restoration International, um, Mrs., I guess it's Waters, said, have a craft box. Everything's in place. You don't have to go hunting for it. You know, and I know um, you put pencils around and paper and most kids up to I don't know what age, I've noticed it in our church, they'll be hanging around <laughs> when we have adult lectures. If you hand out, you know, anything like that, they're going to be there. And so if you have it all collected, but give them a theme, an idea, and maybe, and that's another thing, choose a theme ahead of time for that Sabbath. And then your walk can... At that time of walking, you can be thinking, okay, we're going to be bringing back some ideas and maybe draw a picture of, have a theme of heaven. That's an easy one. You're going to draw heaven. Or, or you could have a theme. Maybe you're going to do a craft. You couldn't go for a walk, and you're going to make cards. They always love to make cards. But the idea is to have this box, and nobody borrows from it during the week. It'll have scissors. It'll have... Border scissors, those are neat. You know, to make pretty. I know that Beatrice could probably add to that because she's crafty. Glitter, glitter. Huh? Glitter. Glitter, oh yeah. <laughs> Put glitter in it. Oh, beware. <laughs> yeah. We have um, do crafts in primary and kindergarten, and I know that's probably, well, it's a real attraction. There were two students I couldn't get to leave from primary. <laughs> One waited two quarters because she loved those crafts. Okay, so you could go to Restoration International, but here was some of the theme ideas. Uh, maybe do a study on, this would be maybe a little older, do a study on the Reformers or the Waldenses, or you could do a study on character qualities. You could do a study on talents incredible chapter in Christ's Object Lessons on Talents. Oh, it is so good. Um, or, so, anyway, you could go there and look that up. 
And I wanted to, I forgot that at that same website, they had activities for family night. So we've gone back from Sabbath. Maybe this would be Saturday night, because that's another big thing. Okay, the Sabbath is over, and now this is Saturday night, and you're not ready to go back, you know, to work. And they had a wonderful list of family activities, but I would like to suggest to reconnect with your children. If you're kind of losing them with their peers, schedule family night. Not every night, not two hours, just maybe a half an hour, three times a week, but schedule it, post it so you're committed, and daddy's committed, and it doesn't have to be all fun and games. Mom and dad are probably going to have some work ideas, wash the car, um, maybe wash the dog, maybe mow the lawn or pick up the yard. Or I know Trish and her family do some outside activities, weed the flower beds. If you do it in the cool of the evening, it's fun to be outside weeding. Just don't do it at noontime. <laughs> When, and I, I want to say this, when my children were growing up, I knew I wanted to be a gardener, wanted them to be gardeners. I hadn't been raised to be a gardener. It's the strangest thing. My dad loved gardening, absolutely loved gardening. He'd go out in noontime. He was a physician, and the office was connected with the house, and he would slip out at noontime while my mom was getting lunch and go in the garden in his suit and tie. And, and my mom would get a phone call and say, oh, where is he? He's in the garden. Do you know he never took me in the garden? I have not figured that out. <laughs> and he had a wonderful garden. And when I started gardening, I would say, Dad, what, do, what did you do for this and what did you do for that? I didn't have a clue. I don't even remember picking one vegetable. I was the cook. I was in home with my mom. Now I wish I could say, Dad. You failed me. <laughs> but he put, he planted in my mind that love. And he planted it in my grandson's mind, which was interesting, who lived nearby, and he became a gardener. Okay, so I would take my kids out in the garden in the heat of the day. Oh, it was not a good experience. They'd put their hats on. They'd pretend they were these pioneer women. And they'd put their big sun hats on, you know, we're out there sweating away. And it, yeah, it wasn't good. But when my daughter got married, the strangest thing happened, because her husband was a gardener. He loves gardening, he loves plants. He's not afraid to put it in the ground. I'm just saying, this thing's going to die, I know. There's a hundred things I need to do for this thing first, and I don't have the time. He just puts it in, and by faith thinks it'll grow, and it usually does. <laughs> now, you know, we know in a garden you've got to do more than that. But he sees anything living as a treasure, and I think of it as, oh, I've got to care for this thing or it'll die. And <laughs> I'm sorry, it's getting better. So my daughter married him, and she would say, oh, we're doing this and we're doing that. And I thought, what in the world happened? <laughs> well, they didn't go out in the heat of the day. 
they went out early morning. I know you can't touch your plants in the early morning, but there's things you can do out there besides touch the leaves. There's plenty. And then they go out in the evening. So the boys like to do that, and I'm just thrilled that that happened, <laughs> despite my, my, my problems there. Okay, so here are some activities you can do in the evening. Um, do a puzzle together. Try a new recipe with Dad in the kitchen. That should be interesting. Go on a bike ride. Um, start a family project. Do, uh, do Legos. Boy, that'd be interesting. Jump on the trampoline. Um, clean a car. It said play hide or seek. I know we've exhausted that game. But when they come to Grandma's house, they love to play hide and seek in my basement. I give them flashlights. My basement is full. And they love it in my full overcrowded basement. That is just a biggie, isn't it? They, they love it. Um, play, yeah, here's another one we, we do at Grandma's house. Play hide the thimble. I mean, how simple could that be? And they still like to do it, and the oldest is 12. Um, do you know what that is, Dorcas? Play the thimble or hide the thimble? They just, or anything, you just hide it, any, any tiny thing. Hide a button is what we do. And they hide it, and they think it's great. Organize or look at your family photos. Um, rearrange the furniture. That's interesting. <laughs> now, I know my daughter does that a lot, so maybe that could be a family activity. Visit the neighbor who lives alone. That is so much fun. An older neighbor, they are just delighted, and they'll just ooh and all over your kids, and you can say, wow, God has done a good job here. <laughs> you know, older people just, they really notice a difference in a Christian child. I know that's happened for my daughter. She's in a community with older people, and they just say, she was afraid that they'd be reporting her to the police just any time. Weren't you? Kind of? Yeah, there was a fear. They're saying, oh, our grandkids. They are just weeping over their grandkids. And I can understand. And then they see my daughter's kids, and her, her kids aren't, you know, they're not perfect like any kids, but they sure, they are polite and helpful, and they just, we have, that is such a witness of our children. 15 minutes. Hmm. Okay, so I hope you're getting some ideas. Fly a kite. Wow. Um, what are some, oh, plan a vacation. Well, it takes a little money, but, you know, maybe once. Which reminds me, I almost forgot. When my husband realized his job was, was taking all his time, it was when we took a vacation, a five-week vacation, and we went out west and to visit every relative on his side. <laughs> it was tough going. 
but he was always connecting back home at the office daily, you know, making sure everything was going okay. He was in charge of the finances for a hospital. This one day he called, well, one day he called back home and somebody had quit in the accounting office. But this was the worst thing, and this is a true story. <laughs> he called home and they said, well, your office just burned down in one hour. Can you believe that? <laughs> I still, it just blows me away. Uh, a truck, a delivery man, it was his first day, and he wanted to be really nice. He knew the delivery was to go to the offices across from the hospital, away from the regular delivery dock. And he would just deliver it directly where it was at. In the office where my husband was, it was the business office. It was all, where all the computers were, okay? So he backs up and he hits the power line. And there was instant fire at everybody's desk. And the women had to just grab their purse. They didn't even get their shoes back on, their heels. And they flew out of the office and it was, it was burned down in one hour. And he was the accountant for this hospital. <laughs> well, you can retrieve records, many. I wished I, if I was good at PowerPoints, I'd show you the picture of that office. I mean, it was just, when we got back home, it was a paved parking lot. <laughs> and that's when he said, well, I think <laughs> that's it. I'm going to do something else. Now, he didn't immediately leave. It was another year, and it was, it was hard once he left. It was very hard to find another job. I think for two years he was looking for a job. But he really made a commitment, you know. I can't keep this up. It's just not right. And so we went to Weimar, and that was like going from... <laughs> Uh, it was just going from one, you know, hard job to another. But um, God is good, you know, and we, he did his best. We've done our best. Well, I just really pray over it, moms and dads, with your husbands. I know, Beatrice, you probably have a busy husband. We all have busy husbands. and But enough on that. Didn't want to forget that. Okay. Let me advance the slide here. Okay. I didn't want to leave the teachers out. Mrs. White says, and I had never read this, in lines of recreation for the student, the best results will be attained through the personal cooperation of the teacher. The, now, here it is. The true teacher can impart to his pupils few gifts so valuable as the gift of his own companionship. This is in leisure time. Well, in all time, you know, working together. But also those sports with the kids, sports. Are we told not to play games? So I've, I did some study, and I, I wasn't able to put them on PowerPoints about sports. But we recently spent, well, maybe it's been a year ago, we went to Fountain View Academy in British Columbia. Have any of you heard of Fountain View Academy? Yeah. It's, 
really beautiful. And I noticed after supper, there was a volleyball net. And this was no big organized team, you know, one against the, this was boys and girls just playing volleyball, and that's boys and girls playing volleyball. But they had fun. They weren't there a long time, and they got off that energy, and then they could go back to the dorm, whatever they did. So there are some sports handled very carefully because, boy, you go down that road and get that excitement. Um, you, pardon? Yes. Oh, it can be competitive. I have played games with my grandsons. My, I'm wanting to have fun. <laughs> They're not thinking, well, I guess they are having fun if they win. <laughs> and, and that was another thing I want to mention, sports. Oh, and games. I was playing croquet one day with two of my grandsons. And my one grandson was, he was obviously winning. I don't know why I was doing so bad that day. Of course, it was, our, our croquet set was on a hillside. So we had to give some, I said, we're calling this handicaps. So we'd give three shots, you know, to get somewhere, because two of them were rescuing the ball. Anyway, my one grandson was clearly going to win. And he gets over by the end of the course, and he stands and says, Grandma, is it all right if I don't play the next couple turns? You know, it's no fun to win. It just makes others miserable, I thought. Wow. Wow, I never thought of such a change in the rules. I said, well, sure, honey. So he stood there while the little one and, and grandma got closer, and then we got close to where you had to go in, and he then went ahead and he won, and then we came right after him, and we were all happy. So I've learned as I play games with my grandson, we change the rules all the time. If we're not having fun, we say, okay, you don't have to get this certain thing, you know, number or whatever. And one of my grandsons, the same one, will say, Grandma, I know you're just not drawing that card or throwing that number. Well, here's a card. Or just go ahead. But we get the approval of the rest and say, is that all right, everybody? And then we play. And I'm, I'm thinking, OK, when they play with their parents or someone else, they're going to say, well, that's not how we play. <laughs> so that's how I play games. So. We still have fun, because sometimes I get weary, and so these active games are kind of wearing. So I like the sit-down games, you know. But that competitiveness, it's in our hearts. And we really need to guard against this. OK, I've got five minutes. Um, let me see how I can wrap this up. I had something here. I knew this would happen. Well, I can't find it. I read this statement that one of the worst things you can do to prevent the Holy Spirit's voice is to engage in competitive sports. That's pretty strong. 
And I do believe that's what we've done. You know, so I just throw that out. You could do a study on sports, and I was reading that, that we want the Holy Spirit's voice to be always, we want to be always hearing it. So parents, that's why it's so important to plan times with your children so they're not drawn to the world's ways of doing things. Okay. Let's see here. I have a tab. I'm going to conclude here. Mrs. White says, and I don't have a PowerPoint for this. My husband was my secretary, and he died out. <laughs> he came home last night and said, is there anything I need to do for you? <laughs> I said, no, honey, just go to bed. But this is what I want to finish with. Something better is the watchword of education. And this is on, let's see, I'll give you a reference since you can't read it. Education 297.1. Something better is the watchword of education, the law of all true living. Whatever Christ asks you to renounce, he offers in its stead something better. Often the youth cherish objects and pursuits and pleasures that may not appear to be evil, but that fall short of the highest good. They divert the life from its noblest aim. Arbitrary measures or direct denunciation may not avail in leading these youth to relinquish that which they hold dear. Let them be directed to something better than display and ambition and self-indulgence. Bring them in contact with truer beauty, with loftier principles, and with nobler eyes, I mean lives. Lead them to behold the one altogether lovely. And we know who that is, don't we? He's our elder brother. I love to picture Jesus as my elder brother. I know he's my savior, he's my king, but the elder brother just gives me the picture of somebody that's there in the family. When our, once the gaze is fixed upon him, the life finds its center. The enthusiasm, the generous devotion, the passionate ardor of the youth find here their true object. Duty becomes a delight and sacrifice a pleasure to honor Christ. Wow, here we go. Here's some goals. To honor Christ, to become like him, to work for him, is, the, is life's highest ambition and greatest joy. Boy, if you can connect your children and get a taste of that joy, of usefulness and, and being used in someone else's life. God can do the rest. And that reminds me, I have a book. I know Mrs. Montag discovered it and Dorcas was delighted. It's called Grow a World Changer. For those who go to Benton Church, it is in your library. Nobody has checked it out. <laughs> Oh, this book is written by a AFM missionary. 
He has a um, pseudonym, Barnabas Hope, and he is planting tent makers in closed countries. It's called Tentual. They have a plan. They go in there as tent makers. And I was thinking, wow, that gives you an idea of how to direct your children in their occupations. They'll see this, I'm just doing this as a, to be a tent maker. And this book goes literally from A to Z with ideas. He has, the first part is connecting mommy's heart with God's heart of service. I, this is a thick book. He's given very much thought to it. And then there is A to Z, just telling you all the really practical things to do. And then he, you can go to his website, and there's links. They don't always work. But I think, I think Carrie went to one of the links. And um, incredible read to plant that heart of service, to get beyond the amusements and the love of pleasure that's all around us to the true joy of service. Well, thank you for all listening. I know <laughs> I am very thankful that Rob and Carrie asked me to go on this journey. I didn't think that last week at this time. <laughs> But I am very thankful because when God engages you in service, even if you begrudgingly go along with it, <laughs> he does the rest. So let's pray. Our Father, you've done it again. You have brought hope to our hearts that you have this grand plan for all of us. We just need to, to say, okay, here I am, help. And you will direct us. And you've given us much, much counsel. So help us find the time to read it. And then connect our mind with your mind so we'll know how to carry it out for that individual child that's so uniquely made by you. So unlike us, anyone else, just direct our minds. Thank you, Father, for what you alone can do in our families, in our churches, and in our world. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.